Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining today's show. My name is Mike Vinoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure. And today we're going to talk about non-competes. Um, you know, like going 20, 25 years ago when I started my career, uh, it seemed like non-competes were a very common thing. Uh, and it seems that over the last, especially the last maybe decade, uh, I think we see fewer and fewer of them. Um, and I think the biggest reason is there's this perception that non-competes aren't enforceable. Uh, and we do see a trend in the courts where there are components, at least, of non-competes that are maybe not, not enforceable, but difficult to enforce. Um, and so we would encourage employers to not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Uh, there are still good reasons to have non-competes, if not non-competes, at least non-solicitations and non-disclosures and, uh, and other legal protections you can give yourself as a business. Uh, that that uh, are enforceable and also align with the culture you're trying to create with your employment brand. Uh, and so to help me unpack this topic today, Brian Schenker, uh, a regular guest of the show. Uh, um, uh, Brian is has extensive experience defending class action and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. Uh, he successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. Uh, Brian regularly, ha regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. So uh, welcome back to the show, Brian. Looking forward to today, today's conversation. Thanks for having me. Uh, an interesting topic, uh, as we always find uh, you know, good ones here. Yeah. So let, let, let's just start out real simple. So I think most people generally understand what a non-compete is, but but give a give us a working definition in the starting place for today's uh, conversation. Sure. So I think non-competes are are probably the most well-known of the uh, contractual mechanisms for protecting a company from you know either unfair competition or uh, you know other companies coming in and poaching employees or simply just your employees going to a competitor. Uh, you know, we kind of look at, uh, you know, restrictive covenants as a, a tiered structure. And so this is what I'd call the highest tier. Uh, Non-competes really give the, the company the most prote protection against the unfair competition. So what do these, these do? They prohibit an employee from, uh, after their employment ends with a company, from working with a competitor for some reasonable period of time within some reasonable uh, geographic uh, territory. Uh, so like you said, uh, you know, non-competes are still enforceable in, in most jurisdictions. Uh, there has been increased uh, scrutiny of non-competes, uh, whether at you know, the state, local, or even federal levels. Uh, but as we'll discuss today, you know, when drafting a non-compete agreement, you know, there are certainly things that can be done that will uh, make the agreement much more likely to be uh, enforced. Um, and so, again, I, I think these are absolutely important, you know, to be used for the appropriate employees, you know, to protect a company's, you know, trade secrets, uh, the company's goodwill and you know, other confidential information. Uh, you know, companies work hard and, you know, invest in their uh, their resources and their employees and their money in other uh, areas uh, to to create uh, you know things that work to their advantage and if a company does not put in these protections uh, like you mentioned non disclosures non solicitations and even non competes uh, you know they're potentially allowing their hard worked uh, resources to just walk out the door. Uh, with an employee and to have little to no recourse against that. Uh, so, you know, in terms of non-competes, non I, I don't think those should necessarily be the default, the standard uh, provision you're putting in every agreement, but it's something to seriously consider. Uh, and, and we'll get into this today, you know, which types of employees uh, they, they should be considered for. Uh, you know, certainly in terms of the state legislation we've seen throughout the country, uh, one of the big issues uh, states and courts have is enforcing non-competes against, you know, low wage earners. Uh, but again, there there might be certain circumstances where, where that would be appropriate. 
but you know that that's what this is what we're really talking about: protecting your company's uh, you know, hard-earned resources, trade secrets, and not allowing you know, unfair uh, competition to you know destroy what what the company's created. Hey Brian, speaking of things the company's created, so to me, one of the things I think I wrestle with from as I think about advocating for employers. Uh, certainly as an attorney, you, you have a legal perspective. What is enforceable, what is not? How do you protect the interests of your business clients, right? Their trade secrets, their, their clients, et cetera. Um, but there's also an employment brand component here, right? In, in, I, I've heard small business and owners uh, uh, talk to me before about the kind of culture they're trying to build and they almost view non-compete agreements as a prenup in a marriage, right? And it just, uh, and, and I mean that in a negative sense. So forgive me if, if you're pro prenup, but um, uh, it, 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 they want they want to create this culture of family inclusivity and we're all in this together. And why start out from almost this adversarial uh, relationship by, by codifying these things in our contract that uh, if you leave me, this is the price you're going to pay. Um, I, I don't think it has to mean that at all, but I'm just kind of sharing feedback that I've heard from from business owners. Can can you speak into that about uh, how you see balancing protecting your rights uh, and 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 putting the legal framework in place to do so, while at the same time managing your employer brand? Sure. And first, I think that's a, a great analogy uh, that you made. And look, I, the point that I make to employers is that you know your employees are only loyal to you and part of that family as long as they're with your company. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm dealing with uh, you know a litigation and whether it's you know, any type, you know, tra trade secret or you know unfair competition claim, discrimination or wage and hour. You know, one of the first things that my clients will tell me is, oh, we, we treated this individual like family. They, you know, they were part of everything. They, they came to, you know, family events. And, you know, I think that's great. I think it's excellent to build uh, and foster a culture uh, that that's very inclusive. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you need to understand, business owners need to understand that, their employees uh, are there to support the business and that they really are only loyal as long as they're getting a, a paycheck from your company. And so it, it's not about, you know, non-competes are not about what's going on during that time they're working for you. It's making sure that, you know, when the time comes that, you know, and they leave that, you know, you'll have the protections in place. Uh, you know, since without that, you know, there'll be like many clients, you know, coming to me and saying, how, how did this happen? We had such a great relationship. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and I don't necessarily see that, you know, having non-compete agreements, you know, creates uh, any uh, negative element in, in a company's culture. I think that, you know, many employees, you know, especially, for instance, in sales uh, or other, you know, that's a technology, software, you know, those types of areas, there are many different areas where employees may may be expecting these, right? They they may have had non-competes or other restrictions at prior employers, so you know this might not be as big a shock to them uh, as as an employer might think. And and I think it also touches on the other point, like that you know you only want to use non-competes for appropriate employees, right? right? These are generally going to be you know, higher level individuals or, you know, individuals who have uh, access to, you know, very important information or very important client relationships. Uh, and so, you know, look, your business, you know, uh, your, your own business is very important to you. And I would say, you know, the continuation of the business is more important than any particular employee. Uh, and so having these, you know, protections in place is really uh, a certain way to ensure, you know, the continuity of the business when, when you know, a key person uh, or someone with key information leaves. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad I asked the question, and we, we didn't talk about this before today's meeting. Uh, I, I really feel the same way. So I, I've heard that concern from folks, but the employment relationship, 
the, the, the term family uh, may be overused a bit. You don't get to choose your family. You do get to choose your work relationship. And that goes both directions, right? The employees get to choose who they work for, especially in a, you know, a sub 3.5% unemployment rate world um, with a labor shortage. Employees really uh, have more power now than they ever have uh, in, when it comes to choice. Uh, and employers have obviously have choice to wh whom they hire. I think maybe the the guidance that I would give to employers here uh, is if you're gonna, and I think there's plenty of good reasons to do, Brian will unpack this for us, but if you're gonna do and use non-compete agreements, um, how you deliver that agreement to me means everything when it comes to employment brand. If this is simply part of the new hire packet that gets mailed and it's a bunch of forms for the person to fill out, then just the way you're interacting with that employee, you're, you're, you're messaging to them that this is all transactional legalese stuff, right? But if you actually sat and explained why, here's why we have this non-compete, and here's why it applies to your job family, because we've built X number of years or decades and millions of dollars building this proprietary yada, yada, yada. If you explain the why, people generally not only understand, they appreciate, right? And then feel drawn into the story uh, in, in signing the document uh, doesn't, ironically, probably doesn't hurt your employment brand. It probably strengthens it because you've really communicated the value of these things that you hold dear and that uh, you're asking them to hold dear as well. Any, any Anything else you'd wanna say on uh, non-competes in general before we kind of talk about some of the considerations? That employers should make. Yeah, sure. Well, and I think you just made it made a great point. I, I think you know, <clears throat> you know, one of the ways you you explain these to employees is look, you know, whether it's someone who's going to be given a lot of confidential information, saying, look, we're entrusting you with you know, you know, everything we have, our most important secrets, and you know, we we need to have some protections, and you know, we hope you're going to do great things. We you know, we don't want this ever to come to this, but because of the level of you know information you'll have or you know for instance you know we're going to get you involved with one of our you know top customers you're going to be the face of our organization with these customers uh and we we'd love for you to grow those businesses but you know look we also need protections so that you know if one day you leave you're, you're not going to take that customer with us and so I, I think those types of things you know can be explained uh and look there's also the other side of it which uh, you know, you can explain, look, you know, we, we want to protect from other companies trying to poach our employees. You know, that, that, that often happens as well, where it's not necessarily the employee, you know, being the bad actor, but it's, uh, you know, and I've dealt with this before where, when, you know, there's an established business in an area and a, a company wants to expand to that area and, you know, they'll poach one by one. They'll take some, uh, they'll first try to get some of the top executives uh, then they'll try to, you know, they'll, they'll go, you know, top to bottom and try to get everyone to come along. And so, you know, that, that can be devastating to a business, you know, as, as I've seen, you know, in one situation, uh, it, it entirely destroyed that, that geographic uh, uh, part of the company's business. They, they couldn't do business there anymore after uh, this other company came in and, and poached all, essentially, uh, all their employees. And you know they had some restrictions in place, but not not ones that were necessarily enough, especially for the, the top employees. So I think, like you said, we'll, we'll go through some of these issues, some of the elements of non competes that that can really uh, prevent some of those uh, you know devastating impacts. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so let's let's uh, get into a little bit more detail. You got you got a bunch of uh, uh, things that you want to want to talk about here about different considerations an employer should be making uh, 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 when developing their non-competes. Uh, and, and to me, the word enforceable, it, it's a really important component here, but I, but I also always want to have one foot in the employment brand, uh, the employer brand uh, the, the, the side as well. So how do we, hit, how do we create non-compete agreements that are in fact enforceable and, and, and protect the interests that they're designed, but also strengthen this employer-employee relationship and just for better communication and expectations on both sides. So right. uh, uh, un un unpack this for us if you could. Sure, sure. So, 
Yeah, so I think before I do so, I think there's there one caveat I want to explain is that, you know, as we discussed, there, there are more and more states that are imposing their own limitations. But I, the, the, the things we're going to discuss, the terms we're going to discuss apply really across the board. There just might be some specifics as to your jurisdiction. Uh, but look, what, what it really comes down to in terms of having an enforceable agreement is that the agreement needs to, the, the restriction, the non-compete needs to be reasonable in terms of time, geography, and it needs to uh, support a legitimate business interest. Uh, so, I, you know, we should break that down. There, there's a lot there. So, you know, the, the geographic component, right? So any non-compete agreement is going to say that, you know, the employee cannot work with a competitor, right? That'll be defined uh, for X period of time within a certain location. And so the agreement needs to define what that location is. And, uh, you know, what the, the enforceability depends on how reasonable that restriction is. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you know, this is obvious, this is a, a, a very legal answer to things, but you know, the, whether it's reasonable will usually determine on the facts and circumstances uh, of that case and, and that business and what the employee did. Uh, that was, but, that was very, there was very legal boxing into a corner that Brian. <laughs> so, right. With, with that said, now, now I'll get into it. But, uh, yeah, so there are factors that, that will be looked at, right? So, you know, there sometimes you'll, you'll have a business that has various arms and, you know, that's a, let's just talk about a sales employee. So, and this sales employee, you know, may only deal with, you know, one geographic territory, even though, you know, the company deals statewide, you know, he or she is only dealing with a certain uh, few counties or maybe one big city in that area. So, you know, when we're drafting that geographic scope, we're not just looking at, you know, where the business uh, uh, handles things, you know, as a whole, but, you know, where is this employee working? Where would it be reasonable to restrict them from working? Uh, you know, so if that employee is only working in that one city, you know, it wouldn't make sense to restrict them from working for a competitor in, you know, maybe across the, the state on the other side of the state at, in a different city, right? What what interest would that be serving if that employee had, you know, no knowledge and, you know, no working relationship with customers, you know, in that other area? So I, I think that that's certainly one thing. We want to look at specifically what this employee is doing, not just, you know, the business as a whole. Uh, in terms of crafting that that geographic uh, scope, and, and then you know, when hey, Brian, we look can, at the, Brian, yeah, can we stick on geography for a second? So that that one makes perfect sense to me. That one seems self-evident, right? Uh, sales rep sells in city X uh, for their territory. They should be able to work for a competitor because they have to feed their family, uh, but in, in a different city. What about? What about a uh, uh, same scenario where it's a sales job, but geography doesn't matter. Maybe maybe you're a software sales rep. Everything you sell is over the internet and Zoom calls. So uh, there is no geography, there's no territory, and you sell your product to the Fortune 1000. So it's a very small fixed marketplace that you can even address. Could you go to a competitor and be restricted from selling to the Fortune 1000? Right. Excellent point. And I, I think with technology these days, right, there's often a, more and more of a case for, you know, nationwide or statewide or even, uh, you know, going across the globe, uh, you know, you know, somewhere in Europe, you know, having restrictions that that go pretty far. And yes, depending on the business, you know, those, you know, national or global uh, you know, res geographic restrictions may be may be reasonable in that circumstance, uh, as long as the company can establish that you know that type of scope is required to protect uh, you know their their interests, uh, and that it's reasonable uh, in light of other terms. So you know, if you're going to have such a broad geographic scope, and that really is required. Then we want to make sure that you know, for instance, the time period of this of the non-compete is narrowly tailored too. Uh, and so, right, we want to make sure everything's you know uh, 
you know, just to the extent needed to protect the companies, uh, you know, uh, from from the this you know unfair competition. So yeah, certainly in some circumstances it'll be broader. I think you know, way back you know 10, 15, 20 years ago there was a trend where you know a non-compete might just list you know the states or give a uh, you know a mile radius, a 50 mile radius from somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. I I think these days it's much better to you know define the the geographic scope in terms of i mean i always start with clients and, and ask them what counties do we want to uh do we want to prohibit them from working right let's that, start there and if and if we can be if the company can be satisfied uh that this employee won't compete with them in certain counties then that, let's go there because that that's going to be quite reasonable uh most of the time and narrowly tailored maybe it needs to be statewide or you know a metropolitan area uh but i'd like to at least start the conversation on the at the narrowest scale uh and then as we expand you know have the discussion with the client well what's the reason that that we want this to be broader uh because you know even if a you know and we'll get to this uh, I, I think in a bit uh even if a you know, a non-compete is reasonable in geography and time. It needs to also be tailored to protect a company's uh, legitimate business interests. So, you know, we're not looking at any of these provisions in a vacuum. They all relate uh, to, you know, really, if a court's looking at this, you know, the real question would be why? Why is this scope necessary to protect the company's interests? Uh, and so. That, that should be the overarching uh, thought when defining the, the geographic scope. Brent, is there anything you, you keep saying, uh, uh, protect reasonable interests? I'm assuming there's some legal uh, specificity for what the word reasonable means, but it probably varies state by state. It, should should employers who are not attorneys just think about this as the good old fashioned definition of reasonable, whatever, when when crafting these agreements? So, well, it's a great question, and I think right in each state, you know, what's reasonable might be looked at a little differently. You know, in some states there are you know laws that are uh, on the books, and others. Uh, the laws developed through, you know, court cases. So, you know, it's important to understand, you know, what may be considered, you know, quote unquote, reasonable uh, in terms of, you know, geography or time uh, in your state. But, you know, there are some overarching, you know, uh, you know themes, I, I think we could say, uh, you know, especially if we're looking at, you know, the time period of a non-compete, right? So, uh, you know, we're talking about how long that restriction will last from uh, when the employee, you know, leaves. So uh, I, I think speaking very broadly, if we have a you know, six month or less restriction, that typically will be reasonable. If we're, you know, two, two years or more, you know, very likely it'll it'll be uh, unreasonable. And so then, you know, obviously that leaves, you know, the six months to uh, 24 month period in between where, again, you know, depending on the circumstances, depending on maybe how narrow the the restriction is in terms of geography, uh, how important the the legitimate business interests are, uh, the, the level of the employee, uh, you know, th- those are all things that'll factor into, you know, what is actually, uh, you know, reasonable. Um, and we've seen some laws, I think, you know, for instance, you know, in Oregon, they've just uh, limited, uh, you know, non-competes to, you know, 12 months or less. Uh, they, the law originally said they had to be 18 months or less, and now they've, you know, lowered that. So, uh, again, it's, it's doing what's you know necessary to protect you know the company, and so uh, you know companies. You know the, the the question I always get asked is what what's the longest period of time we can we can uh, have this you know non compete enforceable for, and you know my my answer you know a company they'll say well I want it for two years and I'll tell them well we can put that in there 
I can't, you know, th there's no guarantee that that will be enforceable. If you want to be, you know, fairly certain that, that it's uh, going to be enforceable, then let's narrow that down, make it a shorter period of time. So, you know, it's balancing what will be enforceable with, you know, what, what the company actually wants. Right. Um, I might be jumping ahead in the conversation a little bit to enforcement, but th these things ultimately, if they're contested, go in front of a judge in court. It's not like a, a, a bureaucrat at the Department of Labor comes in and, uh, and, and makes a judgment. These are court decisions, right? That's right. That's right. And, uh, and so, yeah. And so, so given that, um, I would think that the more so, th assuming there's ambiguity in the word reasonable, that the more reasonable you are in your agreements, the the more favorable a judge would probably look upon you. If you had what were obviously ridiculous you can't work for another competitor or, or talk to another one of our customers or anybody in this industry for the next 10 years, that you, you probably make yourself laughable. Um, and therefore, even any, any legitimate claims you might have in this agreement are going to get thrown out versus uh, somebody who maybe overstepped the lines a little bit. But if, you're, if it was clear that you were attempting to be reasonable, but perhaps a bit biased, uh, a judge may look on that a lot more favorably. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it also goes to the deterrence effect of these, right? I, I mean, no company wants to get into litigation over, you know, restrictive covenant. You know, if forced to, you know, many companies will. Uh, but, you know, the way I look, even though I'm a litigator by trade, uh, the way I look at non-competes is that you know, I don't want to necessarily be in court to enforce them. I want to have this agreement be something that will serve the deterrent effect and, you know, get compl uh, get compliance with it. Uh, and so, you know, you can expect that if, if an employee leaves and they're subject to a non-compete, you know, they might speak to a lawyer. They might speak to, you know, counsel at their, uh, their new company to find out, uh, you know, what the, what the enforceability would be. So, you know, even if you have some draconian restrictions that look great on paper but would never be enforced, uh, you know, that employee will very well find that out. And, you know, if they speak to the attorney and say, oh, there's no way this will be enforced, then they'll, they'll go right ahead. And, you know, you know, the the agreement may be unenforceable and you'll be left with with nothing as opposed to the, you know, the lesser, more narrow uh, non-compete that that would have been enforceable and, and at least gotten the company some protection. Um, and look, right, so I, we I talked think, about geography. We talked about keep the groups uh, uh, narrowing it down. Same, same, same more about keeping the group small in and make that and don't do a one size fits all for the entire employee population. Right. So as I mentioned earlier, you know. We look at non-competes kind of as a, a tiered approach to you know, protecting companies. So, uh, you know, at, at the lowest level uh, of the tier, we're talking about uh, maybe, you know, very low wage earners who are not exposed to a whole lot of, you know, trade secret or valuable confidential information, but you want some protection. So they might just have a non-disclosure. Uh, and then you might have, you know, mid-level employees who might actually have more of that uh, confidential information. And you know, so we might look at you know, non-solicitation of customers and, and vendors and employees. And right, when we're talking about non-competes, we're talking about those, you know, high, that higher level of employees, the ones who uh, you know, may you know, have customer relationships, may, may know all about the company's trade secrets, right? And, I, I say trades, you know, just so we're on the same page, you know, trade secrets are, you know, information processes, you know, methodologies that employer keeps secret uh, and that are not shared outside of the company and probably not even with all within the company. And they provide a value, you know, the secrecy of those provide a value to the company. Uh, and so, you know, employees who actually have those, you know, that, that might be a reason for non-compete. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, employees who have, 
value relationships with valuable customers. You know, they are, you know, that's the goodwill, right? When we talk about a company's uh, goodwill, you know, those are the relationships, the reputation with customers. And, you know, how is that developed by the, you know, customer facing employees of the company? Uh, and so, you know, again, that just, you know, the, the first people you, you think of are, are sales, but there, there are many others. Uh, but, you know, they are those types of employees, uh, those customer facing employees are, you know, gaining goodwill for the company. And, you know, those are the types of employees that, you know, when they leave, we don't want them to go to a competitor and then be able to, you know, use that relationship with, you know, your company's, uh, you know, clients and, and take those away. Uh, so, you know, that's why I, I think, you know, when we talk about non-competes, this is not for everyone. Uh, I'm sure, you know, every once in a while, there's stories in the news about, you know, company, you know, large companies that are having, you know, very low wage earners, uh, you know, sign non-competes. And, you know, that off, you know, that's, that's been the target of many of the state laws uh, that, that have come down in, in recent years that, you know, non-competes are not allowed for employees earning uh, less than a certain amount. Right. For instance, in Illinois, I think that's you know seventy five thousand dollars a year in Oregon. I think it's uh, or in D.C. rather, I think it's even higher, about a, a little over one hundred thousand. Uh, so, right. The, the, the thought should not be, oh, you know, what, what Mike and Brian talked about today sounds great. I, I want every one of my employees signing and on compete. As we'll get to that, there are lesser restrictions that you can have uh, as a whole. But, you know, these non-competes are going to be for, uh, you know, not not just high level. They can be for others like we discussed in the, in the situation of, uh, you know, acquiring goodwill. Uh, but, you know, there should be specific reasons why you have a non-compete with an employee. Um, you know, there might be unique talents uh, someone brings uh, to the table, right, a, a unique type of employee, you know, those are fine, right? That then they might be subject to a non-compete. Uh, but you know, if, if you're uh, going to have you know low wage earners who don't who you know there really isn't much of a business necessity for them to have a non-compete. You know, no matter how reasonable the agreement is in time and geography, a court is very unlikely to enforce those. Yeah. Um. I think maybe I'm stealing a little bit from enforcement again, but how about you talk about in writing? Um, how important is it? Let's, let me rephrase the question. It's obviously better to have it in writing. Uh, can you have non-compete agreements that are not in writing, that are that are oral agreements? So, not, not you know what I would say is you know depending on the jurisdiction, you know there, there's a possibility, but Generally, no. These things need to be in writing. They are, uh, you know, it, it's such a, an important uh, agreement that, you know, it, it should be its own own separate agreement. Um, you know, even, you know, one of the muddier areas I've seen is uh, sometimes companies put non-competes or other restrictions in their handbooks. Uh, and, you know, it's you know i'm fine with maybe reiterating some of the res restrictive covenants in a handbook uh just so the employee is aware of them but uh you know you want this to be a written enforceable agreement right just think of uh going to court and saying we've got this agreement and the, and the judge says where is it well it's verbal and, and then you're going to get into the issue of you know the company says it was one thing the employee says it was another uh, and, you know, for such a, uh, the company is asking for, you know, very serious, very restrictive uh, relief from the court, you know, affecting the employee's livelihood that I think there's very little chance of ever getting, you know, a non-compete enforced where, where there's no writing. Uh, and going back to the handbooks, uh, you know, I think most handbooks Right, have a provision at the end where it says, you know, this is not a contract for employment. Uh, and when the when the employee you know, signs for it, they're just uh, kind of saying, I, I acknowledge that I've received this handbook and I'll you know abide by these policies. 
but you know there's usually that that exclusion that this is not an agreement so uh trying to put a non-compete or non-solicit in a handbook uh is typically not a good idea it should, it should be something uh that's a that's a standalone uh, document so given that it's a standalone document it is uh, uh an agreement one of the things aka a contract um in my career negotiating contracts uh, with suppliers um, and, and customers, uh, one, of the, one of the most frequently contested items is the venue. Uh, uh, basically, if, if I'm in Texas and the vendor is uh, Chicago, Illinois based, they want the the venue, the the laws of Illinois to apply. We want the laws of, of Texas to apply because their attorneys live there, our attorneys live here, makes it easier on us, right? And so, uh, how, how should employers be thinking about venue uh, in in the presiding law when it comes to these agreements? If you have employees that are in different states, yeah. So this is actually one of the most important aspects of uh, a non-compete agreement and you know is often you know overlooked especially right in the circumstance where there there are multiple states at play uh, and that's because you know as we've mentioned you know certain states are starting to view non-competes differently uh, and might have you know different uh, different takes you know I, I can give you an example you know in, in a recent case um, I saw there was a uh, an employee who was based in Georgia, uh, and he worked for an Ohio-based uh, insurance company. Uh, and so this uh, Georgia employee left the company and went to work for a competitor in Georgia. Now the the restrictive covenant had an Ohio choice of law, even though the the employee was based in Georgia, but it was silent as to the forum right so it didn't say where any lawsuit regarding the agreement had to be brought uh, so the employee brought immediately brought a lawsuit in georgia state court uh seeking a declaration from the court that the you know that the restrictive covenant was unenforceable that it was invalid and it, you know it asked the employee asked the court to make that decision under georgia law because that's where he was based and you know, the public policy would favor, you know, enforcing Georgia law. Immediately after that, the, the company, the Ohio-based company, filed a, a case against the former employee in Ohio court seeking to uphold the, uh, the contract under Ohio, under Ohio law. So you can see, I mean, just before they even got to the substantive issues, it was a question of what, right, where should this be venued and whose law? And you know, in the end, what happened that the Georgia court, uh, well, even complicating it more, the company then tried to remove the state court action in Georgia to federal court, thinking that would be more favorable, but it got kicked back to state court. Uh, but, but again, then in the end, the, the Georgia state court found that uh, you know it, it issued relief saying that it gutted the uh, the restrictive covenant agreement saying that you know it would not be enforceable under Georgia law and that it was going to imply apply Georgia law because uh, applying Ohio law would have probably validated the agreement and it would have violated Georgia's public policy so yeah. so right long-winded way of saying it's important to consider you know that where the the claims will be brought and and the law and I think right that where they will be brought the forum right is not just an issue in terms of uh, like I was discussing right which court is going to decide it necessarily but also right what's most convenient for the company um, right. you know often right. oftentimes these uh, when when these agreements are entered into they'll be you know found reasonable but you, you know you want to make sure that you know if you're a New York-based company, you're you're not necessarily making a California employee file something in state court in New York, right? That that might be a bit you know uh, burdensome and and maybe unconscionable. So uh, th there's some weighing of the factors, and and certainly you know you know a, a company might want to seek you know legal advice to determine you know what the best elements for you know choice of law and forum might be. Right. 
it, it, you know, I mean, it's consistent with conversations you and I have had on the show and, and others. Uh, the trend is there's always going to be big federal laws that we all have to follow, but states increasingly and, and now increasingly uh, municipalities, counties and, and cities uh, have their own laws. And if you are a company with uh, that employs people uh, across a dispersed geography, it's almost impossible to know all those laws, let alone keep up with all those laws uh, as they change. Uh, and, and so it, there, there are too many unintended bad consequences uh, by trying to keep things too close. And clearly the, the, the mega trend is towards more employee protection, not employer protection, right? Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, certainly. And I, I think, right, that, that's what we're seeing in terms of uh, these state, you know, the patchwork of state laws in, in this area that, you know, it's, it's a common theme, again, in my discussions with clients when, you know, I explain to them what the law, whether it's, you know, with respect to non-competes or another area, and, you know, the reaction is, well, well that's not fair. And, you know, look, it, it, you know, a lot of the states are uh, looking out for employees and, you know, there's almost an assumption that the employers are, you know, the bad guy and will take advantage of these employees. And I think that's somewhat, you know, the premise uh, for a lot of these laws and, and that, um, you know, regardless of being bad or not, you know, what, what the issue is a lot of the time with non-competes is, you know, the, the difference in bargaining power between the employer and the employee, uh, right? It, it typically comes down to if the employee wants the job, they're going to have to sign the non-compete. Uh, you know, th that's one of the things that, uh, you know, is a reality of the situation. So, you know, when you hire an employee, you know, signing the non-compete can be a requirement to, to start the position. Uh, you know, I think what one thing we we didn't touch on, but I'll, I'll touch on briefly is you know the consideration element, right? The, these are contracts, and you know, right? Every contract requires consideration, uh, and so you know, a lot of these non-competes are signed at the outset of employment, uh, and you know, courts find that hiring someone, uh, giving them a job, is consideration, is something of value that's given to the employee in exchange. Uh, for their promise not to compete. Uh, but where a lot of companies go wrong, and, and again, this depends on what the law is in your jurisdiction, is you know in the middle of someone's employment, they'll ask them to, or probably not ask, but tell them uh, to sign a non-compete agreement. And sometimes the, the consideration there is just continued employment. Hey, you know, we're, we're not gonna fire you. We'll let you keep working here if you sign this non-compete. And in some jurisdictions, you know, that's okay. But in others, uh, they they do require something of value to be given, whether it's you know a raise, a promotion, uh, additional benefits. You know, it could be PTO, could be you know something of value uh, to you know that the employee receives in order to you know. Uh, agree to these restrictions and again that, that's just a basic tenet of you know contract law that you know an enforceable contract requires you know obligations from both sides something of value to be you know going both ways uh, and, and so that's also something to consider if, if you're uh, a company that's going to have you know existing employees start signing on so the plan there Brian is that uh, uh, a non-compete agreement should tie back to some trigger event. Obviously, new hire is the perfect time to do it, but also promotion, raise, change of job, uh, use those trigger events because consideration will be uh, somewhat baked into the transaction. Is that is that the right way to think about it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Last thing maybe on this before we, we talk about alternatives uh, to traditional non-compete. Um, uh, and, and this is what I think you'd refer to as a, as a savings clause, um, especially in this world of multi-state geographically dispersed employees where the 
the it's the it's the local venue so your your ohio georgia example is perfect um when you can't know the laws of all these other venues um how, how do you how do you how do you use savings clauses to retain as much protection of the agreement even if there are elements that don't abide by the 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 local uh the local laws sure so right and this is right what we're talking about a, a savings clause or sometimes it's called you know blue penciling uh is where you know we put in a provision in the non-compete agreement that permits the judge to edit the restrictions uh and essentially if if the if the judge determines that any of the restrictions are not reasonable or they're overly restrictive that the judge is permitted to edit the agreement and uh basically you know change it to uh reflect the the employee and the employer's intentions but within the bounds of the law so yeah obviously the best practice is to have something that already complies but you know these like you said it's it's a savings clause right it, it's you know just in case it's found you know the restrictions are found to be unreasonable that you know we can convince the court not to just throw out the entire clause or the entire agreement but to still give it some force and effect albeit you know more uh maybe more narrowly tailored uh so that there's still some pr uh, protection given um now you know this practice is not without controversy uh because again it's talking about the unequal bargaining positions between employers and employees you know one of the uh arguments against blue you know blue penciling is that look the company drafted this agreement they they knew what was reasonable or not the fact they chose something that's unreasonable it should be thrown out right that that's the argument against it uh and so you know Look, even even in jurisdictions where it's allowed, you know, there are judges who, you know, may not, you know, may not do it, uh, may not, you know, blue pencil an agreement. Uh, so, you know, the, the best idea is to, you know, understand the jurisdiction and what's considered reasonable in the company's jurisdiction. But, you know, as almost a last ditch effort, you know, this type of provision is, is always good to have in the agreement as a you know as a just in case uh so it's gonna come back full circle to good old-fashioned definition of reasonable not a not technical jargon but uh the, the the more reasonable you can be in protecting your interest while not being unreasonable to an employee and their their rights to make a living in an industry that they have developed a skill set over x number of years uh the, the the better right so um i'm looking at the clock here i'm, I'm going to move us along a, a really good job i think unpacking a bunch of the, the the major considerations for putting these agreements together but let's talk about alternatives to the traditional non-compete where you know i'm in this industry and you can't go work for one of my competitors and steal my customers there there are still lots of other really even even if you choose not to do a full non-compete there's a lot of things that you should be thinking about protecting as a, from, an, from an employment perspective, whether it's non-solicitation of customers or employees, right? Right. So, again, I think the very first, uh, you, know, li uh, you know, line of defense is a non-disclosure agreement. And, you know, these can be applied to all employees, regardless of level, wages, uh you know these are you know very uh reasonable <laughs> using that word agreements that uh that can protect the the company and really don't restrict the employee in any way other than saying you know any confidential information or uh trade secret information you learn about the business uh during your employment you will you know not share out you know for any uh reason other than working for our business so uh so, you know, not, so we might not restrict you from going across the street working for a competitor but you sure can't share our price list right exactly and and the good thing about a non-disclosure it does not need to be limited in time right it can be 
for for the for the entire future, right? You you can't disclose this information. So uh, you know, certainly talking about the tiered approach, you know, minimum wage employees, low level workers, it's absolutely fine to have them sign uh, these non disclosure and confidentiality agreements. Uh, you know, and that should be a base. Uh, and then you know, moving up from there, right? Then then we have you know the the non solicitations and you know there are different forms of non-solicitation. So for your mid-level employees who may have uh, some you know, customer relationships, right? you, you want a non-solicitation of customers that you know, when they leave that you know, we're, we're not saying that they can't go and you know, work for a competitor, they can, but they're not going to be able to solicit customers. And you know, again, a, a non-solicitation should also be uh, reasonable in its scope. So, for instance, you know, we won't, you know, that's uh, again, talk about a sales employee who's working in a certain territory, right? We, we would often define their non-solicitation restriction by, you know, maybe any company, any client that they've uh, worked with in the past year or two years uh, before their termination, uh, that they won't solicit any of those, uh, right? There's, you know, an overbroad uh, non-solicitation would look like something like, you know, you're not to solicit any customer of the company. And that might not be reasonable because that employee may have never worked with some of these companies. And so they would have no information that would really, you know, help them or, you know, create an unfair competition scenario. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's important to look at exactly what level of restrictions uh, the company needs in terms of that non-solicit. Uh, and look at another part, you know, we, we, I mentioned, you know, poaching employees before is a non-solicitation of employees. Uh, those are important too, because look, what, what often happens is, you know, one employee leaves, then starts talking to others and says, oh, I'm working at a great place. You should come. And, you know, and before you know it, there's a whole department or, you know, a lot of your top talent in one, one of the company's departments has exited, which is bad enough. And they, they've gone to a competitor. Uh, so, you know, you want to have, you know, broad enough non-solicitation language that it covers, you know, rating employees. And, uh, that's not just directly, right? It could be indirectly. Uh, you know, what, just giving you an example of, of what I'm talking about and that I've litigated in other cases, right, is, um, you know, where, you know, we say the employee will not for a period of one year uh, of termination directly or indirectly, uh, you know, in association with others, uh, you know, hire, solicit, recruit, uh, entice others to come. Uh, and, you know, what, what often happens and what I've seen happen is, you know, the, the person with the restriction says, well, you know, I didn't reach out to them. You know, they, they reached out to me. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, that's something where you want to make sure the language of the non-solicit is broad enough to cover that where it's not just that they won't solicit. Right. We need more language that whether it's direct or, or indirect. <laughs> I, I think this is maybe the the single biggest point that I would want to make here for employers is, is you know, I, I talked to a small business owner about a year ago, and, and she said that she didn't want non-competes because culturally, um, if they don't want to be here, I don't want them here. I want them to go find what the good fit for them, and I only want people who want to be here. And so I understood that, um, uh, uh, but... Uh, here we are about a year later and this same person uh, speaking to her recently has had some turnover of staff and the staff are recruiting her employees. And uh, uh, <clears throat> she had kind of bucketed non-compete and non-solicitation as, as one thing <clears throat> and, and regrets not having non-solicitation agreements in place now. Yeah, and, and to be honest, you know, when companies come to me and say, I want a non-compete, uh, I often start off with explaining to them what a non-solicitation can do. And, you know, we go through whether that would actually satisfy their needs because, uh, you know, while 
you know, non-solicitations also need to be reasonable uh, in terms of the time period and their provisions, right? They're much more likely to be enforceable, that most of the laws we're seeing in states are not necessarily applying to non-solicits, mostly of non-competes. Uh, so it's something that's much more likely to be enforceable because, right, it's not restricting the former employee's ability, you know, to, to uh, you know, create a livelihood. So, yeah, yeah. it's often it's, something real important that, you know, even in addition to a non-compete or without it, you know, should be should be put in an agreement. And tell you what, I mean, somebody goes to a competitor that you don't want them to and they're competing against you, that might make life harder, but you lose couple key employees, uh, that can that can have a much more devastating impact on the business than than some trade secrets walking out the door, depending on what those the value of those trade secrets, right? So uh, highly recommend uh, this one. I'm looking at the clock, Brian, I probably let us go too long uh, on, on considerations. I, I think you hit the biggies, right? NDA is a no-brainer, non-solicitation of customers and employees. Uh, I think this is low-hanging fruit. Any other alternatives that we should be thinking about? I think those really cover it. The, the non-disclosures and non-solicitations. I guess I'll just add that you know non-solicitations, non-solicitation, right? There are three ways, right? Non-solicitation of customers, uh, employees, and also you know vendors. Sometimes there's an important relationship with a vendor, uh, and that you know there's some reason to to include that in a non-solicit. Probably a conversation for a different day about how to structure your agreements with vendors. But uh, we'll, we'll 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 save that one, and that's probably not employment law, so maybe that's not you. Um, real quick, let's just touch on on enforcement. We, I think I I kept on going there all throughout because it, all, it, it everything here we talk about ties back to enforcement. Um, but these are not federal laws. There's no federal non-compete law. Um, there are some states have specific non-compete laws. Others don't, and it just uh uh historical trends and uh, of case law i guess you'd call it right where uh judges base decisions based on decisions of prior cases um uh i i, I feel like we hit this one what what else would you say in closing about the enforcement of non-compete agreements sure so i'll just briefly go through the steps that you know i'll usually take in, in enforcing it and so well, and even going a step back real quick before I get involved, I think that you know when when a company has an employee leave who is subject to a non-compete or non-solicitation, I think it's important to inform that employee uh, of those restrictions. Uh, there's often uh, this is often an agreement they signed years ago, and they they really honestly might not even remember doing so. They, they might not be sure if they signed it. If they do remember it, they, they might not still have a copy. So, you know, I think one one uh, recommendation, you know, off the bat is at termination or when an employee, you know, uh, resigns who's subject to a, such an agreement, you know, give them a copy of it. Remind them of this restriction, not as a threat, just as, uh, you know, right. something that's informative. Uh, yep. And then, look, the, the next step, once, you know, if the company learns that the employee has, you know, taken employment, uh, accepted employment with a competitor or otherwise, you know, violated, you know, some type of restrictive covenant, uh, the first step that we do before going to court would be uh, coming to an attorney and, you know, putting out a cease and desist letter. Uh, typically, that will just go to the employee. It'll, you know, outline the facts as we know that, you know, violate the agreement and demand that they abide by the agreement immediately and, you know, start a conversation and uh, hopefully, you know, compel their, their you know, uh, compliance without going to court. Uh, sometimes, and I, I just want to, you know, put a caveat on it, that sometimes that cease and assist will go to the new employer. There are risks with that uh, because, that can lead to some type of, you know, interference type claim with their uh, uh, their employment. So, you know, tread tread carefully there. Uh, but then, look, the next step: if the cease and desist and those discussions don't uh, gain compliance, then you know, litigation is the next step. And typically, uh, the most important aspect to a litigation uh, over a non-compete is right at the outset when the complaint is filed. Uh, we're going to file a motion for a temporary restraining order, a TRO, and a preliminary injunction. And uh, those 
uh, are you know fancy words for saying you know we want to keep the status quo or to you know we're saying we you know for instance uh, example a temporary restraining order that's something we're going to file and we're going to get to court within days and there's going to be a hearing likely within days uh, and the court uh is going to issue an order you know very quickly you know saying you know until we have the next hearing this employee you know cannot work for you know this competitor or you know it's going to contain some element that will hopefully if obtained by the company uh will you know require compliance with the restrictive covenant you know pending a, a more broad hearing and you know that tro preliminary injunction uh stage is is the most important because you know Oftentimes, the damages in these cases are very hard to prove, and what the company is looking for is not necessarily monetary damages, but just compliance with the agreement. And so that's what you know an injunction can do. And oftentimes, you know, if the company is able to quickly and swiftly go into court, get you know get a, a, a temporary restraining order, get a preliminary injunction, yeah, you know, that's all that's needed. The, the, you know, oftentimes after that, the matter will be resolved. Right, we're not actually going to go on the merits and continue a case and litigate for years and uh, you know try to get money damages. That does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't, but oftentimes it's uh, it's just that quick relief that's that's uh, uh, warranted, and then the sides can come to an agreement about you know keeping those restrictions in place. Uh, so you know that injunctive relief is really uh, a company's leverage at the outset. Yeah, very good. Brian, I really appreciate the conversation today. Um, there, there's a lot to know here. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush us through. Uh, sometimes these things can be really complex. Jackson Lewis is a national firm, so regardless of where you are, uh, they're there to help. Uh, if, you, if you get in trouble and you want help putting these agreements together in the first place, also assure from our uh, outsourced human resource services, whether it's on a small scale just to support your managers, or if you are the you are a solo manager of a company to provide you the proactive insurance, if you will, of staying compliant with laws or an entire outsource solution. Uh, uh, Brian and the firm of Jackson Lewis and the, and the Assure team are here to help. So uh, until next week, Brian, I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate the value add. Yep, thanks a lot for having me again. All right, until next week, thanks everybody. Thanks.